The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Let's go down into God's Word. We began a mini-series on kingdom justice a couple of weeks ago, and this morning I'm going to finish that out. Um, And then next week we're going to kick off uh, a mini-series on kingdom work and, um, you know, bringing God's kingdom principles to the workplace. So let's turn our attention to Isaiah 58 and give attention to God's Word. Good morning. Our passage reading comes from Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we feasted, fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit him with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose? Choose a day for a person to humble himself. Is it to bow down his head like a reed? and to spread uh, sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? and not to hide yourself from your, from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as a noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is a reading of of the Lord's Word. Praise be to God. Thank you, Michelle. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you wake us up from our slumber and give us a passion and a new vision to gospel-saturated justice, the very life that you have called and redeemed your people to and for. God, we pray that your Spirit would come and move our hearts to think new thoughts, to think differently, 
that we would not conform to old molds, but that we would be conforming to Christ. Oh God, would you do that work among us at Downtown Church for the glory of Christ and the sake of others and our own good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure that Rachel and I, as uh, parents of three daughters, are very much like um, other parents in the church. We allowed our children to have sleepovers on occasion. And um, I'm sure that our sleepovers went much like your sleepovers in the sense that, you know, at the early in the night, you're good, pushing through dinner, maybe catching the first half of the movie. But then as a parent, you're tired, you're ready to go to bed. So you just kind of retire to the bedroom and let them have run of the house. And uh, there's no telling what goes on during the night uh, while you're asleep. But uh, you find out when you wake up before them in the morning. And you come into the kitchen and you see evidence of uh, food and snacks and no telling what else uh, they got into in the night. And you walk into the den, you see pillows and blankets and popcorn all over the floor. With the light of dawn, you see what was going on in the middle of the night. And as we come to our text this morning, I really feel as if we are at a place as a church um, where the light is beginning to dawn and we're beginning to see what has been happening while we've been asleep. And this is a common story for the people of God. God sends his prophet to awaken his people to have the heart that he has, to have the burden that he has, because the church... Our nature, the nature of our hearts is to fall asleep and to become apathetic. And that's exactly where the people of God here are here. And so Isaiah is being commissioned by God to go and tell his people to wake up. But what we see and what I want us to focus on first in this passage is that those who are asleep typically don't know they're asleep. It's the people that are asleep that don't know they're asleep. That sounds easy enough, but we need to unpack it a little bit. Um, These are people that think they're awake when they're actually asleep, and we see this right from the beginning. Isaiah, God doesn't tell Isaiah to to nudge his people and nicely kind of have a little ring a little bell in their ear, but what does he say from the beginning? Verse 1, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. You ever had anybody that speaks like a trumpet? Probably not. Uh, Maybe some people that sing like a trumpet. But what he's saying is scream at the top of your lungs. Why? Because my people are asleep. Be that guy. Early in the morning when everybody else is asleep, he's running around banging on pots and pans trying to wake everybody up. Be that guy for my people. Why? Because they're not just asleep physically, they're asleep spiritually. He diagnoses this in um, 1B. Declare to my people what? Their transgression. To the house of Jacob, their sins. They are asleep in sin, and God tells Isaiah to go and to wake them up. We see it further, that they think they are awake when... Isaiah writes, yet they seek me daily 
and delight to know my ways. Interesting. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. This is language of worship, Jewish temple worship. This is language of those who are seeking to draw near to God, who think that they are near to God, and yet they are not near to God. And what, the, what God is getting at in the heart of Israel is what Jesus was constantly getting at in the heart of his church, and that's the reality that there is a difference between religion and Christianity. There's a difference between religion and having a heart for God. And the difference, as we see, as we read down, when the writer is demanding that we house the homeless, that we feed the hungry, that we free the oppressed, is that at the very essence of religion is a heart that is hardened to the needs of others. It is playing religious games. It is um, following strictly religious outlines and, 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 and putting religious duty high on their agenda. And yet the needs of their neighbor, the justice issues of their neighbor is nowhere to be in sight. And so the difference between religion and Christianity is that Christianity awakens one to the needs of their neighbors. Christianity awakens one to the needs of those in their culture. Another difference between religion and Christianity is those that are involved in religion are involved in religion for the sake and the goal of getting God to serve them. We see this in this passage, verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? See it? We've been so good. We've, we've worked so hard. We've been so diligent. We have humbled ourselves. The person that is truly humble never reminds God how humble they are. That's somewhat prideful. But we have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. You can see that the fruit of the righteous, of the unrighteous, the fruit of religion is pride and anger. When life doesn't work out, he's mad at God. He's shaking his fist. He's saying, then why have we even lived for you? And surely all of us in here can relate to that on some level. You see, suffering and circumstances of life come and life is not working out. And it flushes out the false motives of our hearts. It shows us that that we are not genuinely seeking God for God, but we're seeking God to make Him indebted to us. But the gospel of grace frees us. The gospel of grace opens our hearts to the gift of salvation that He's given to us unworthy servants. And how He has adopted us as children into His kingdom through faith, not works. And when we see that, we have a heart that is full of God, but also is full of our neighbor. And we realize that the only debt that is outstanding is the debt of love that we owe God and others. Because we have been saved by grace, through faith, and this not even of ourselves. Jesus uncovers this 
religion versus Christianity. In Matthew 23, he calls curses down upon the religious leaders of the day. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I love that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, remember the the passage, John 3, which, which was the launching pad of this kingdom series. One who is born again has eyes to what? See the kingdom of God. That's what we're getting at here. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. You see, their tithing of their mint, dill, and cumin, the, the smallest, tiniest herbs that can be grown in a garden. They're taking um, great detail and effort to make sure that they don't miss anything in regard to what they owe God. But they're doing it to make God indebted to them. But they are completely asleep and completely blind to it. And so we have to ask ourselves that question this morning. Are we the ones that are asleep? Are we the ones that are looking to God to make Him our servant as opposed to receiving God's grace and us becoming His servant and gladly and willingly being His slave? Well, the one who is awake often doesn't know he's awake. So how do we know we're awake? The one who knows he's awake is awake to the needs of his neighbor. Sorry for my voice, a little cold. The one who is awake is awake to the needs of his neighbor. Man, I've been so encouraged over the last several months. Um, Over the summer, we had a rough, um, just a rough time in terms of race. In, in this country, there were several shootings, police shootings, and then there were several police who were shot. And um, there's uh, violence and there's protest and uh, there's tension in our country. And yet as a result of that, and it was really after the closing of the bridge here in Memphis, uh, about 150 churches across racial lines came together. And um, we have been meeting um, right up until uh, through the fall, and our next meeting, we have one scheduled for November. And uh, men such as Sandy Wilson at Second Pres and Rufus Smith at <clears throat> Hope Church, Chris Conley at High Point Church, David, Anders- David Anderson at Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church. We've been coming together on an executive team, <clears throat> and we have been working on a statement that we can all agree upon that propels the justice issues forward. And our heart and our concern is um, for the police. How can we uphold our respect and, um, and, and how can we honor those in law enforcement as well as and simultaneously while um, protecting the rights of the defenseless and those that are being policed? And uh, we have come out with a statement, and I'd love to read just a portion of it. And I think the, the <clears throat> excuse me, paragraph that I want to read 
is entitled Our Confession and Commitment to Each Other, which really gives the heart of this justice document that we are creating. And it, it, it reads, We have not, talking about we as pastors, black and white pastors, we have not regularly communicated openly and lovingly with each other in the past. Isn't that beautiful? But we now seek to converse honestly about sensitive subjects, out of which we pray genuine reconciliation moves all of our citizens forward. We desire peace birthed in justice. As such, we are also committed to teach our congregations to live godly lives, to seek justice as modeled by Jesus, and to raise our voices for the vulnerable and the oppressed. We commit to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ's calling to radical love. One aspect of, or several aspects of this document is that we are committed to being involved with the mayor and have a voice with the city council. We're committed to um, having a representative at least on uh, CLURB, which is a body of people that um, serve as an independent agency or, or body that can review complaints by citizens against police and um, and police brutality. <clears throat> and uh, another thing that, that we're committed to is banding together as churches. And if an injustice is committed against someone in our body, and we have a procedure to determine if that indeed has, has happened, that we as churches will band together with one voice. And we will represent and we will, um, we will speak and we will stand with um, those that have experienced oppression or, or an injustice together. I don't know of any other time in the history of Memphis when churches have banded together, not just for a revival, not just for a one-night thing, but for a long-term, ongoing deal. We're even asking each church to pitch in whatever they can. And even if it's a dollar, that church will have a vote and, and will be treated like a full member um, in this body. And uh, we are going to hire a full-time director. Um, all these churches coming together to hire a full-time director who will lead us in this initiative. Um, I'm so excited about it. And yet, some might hear this and say, it sounds too overly political. And I want you to know that it, it, it could be because the line between being a gospel-saturated, justice-consumed person and someone who is uh, simply trusting politics as their end goal is a fine line. But what we have concluded is that the church has been silent too long and unwilling to at least risk the potential of missteps for the sake of what we believe is clear in Scripture to be in the very center of God's heart, and that is gospel-saturated, peace-loving justice. And why are we there? Because we believe that the gospel empowers us not just for personal salvation, but to become a community of peace and justice that brings shalom to the world. I love Galatians 5, 13-14. Paul said, and reminds us, For you were called to freedom. We all love freedom. 
Then he says this, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why is that? Is that because that's how we're saved? No, because the way that we're saved, when we understand grace and the reality that God refused to be um, exalted and refused to be honored and take the name of God, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, taking the very nature of a servant. The fact that this is how we were saved, God became man, humbled himself, lived under the injustice of the world, and died under the injustices of the world. That because that is the method of our salvation, grace and God's love has come to us through the work of a justice fighter, if you will. Because that is the nature of how we have received our salvation, then we know that it's not just to assure us of an eternal glory, though thank God for the eternal glory, but it's to save us that we might be a community that represents Him in all of His glory. Part and parcel to that is the nature of His justice in the world. And we see that in Isaiah 58 in verse 7. Bring the homeless poor into your house. I mean, why? what have they been asleep to? They've been asleep to justice issues. Bring the homeless poor into their house. Do you understand what that means is, is that God's people are living, refusing to even think about the homeless in their town. And so God comes and he says, wake up. And wake up, and what it looks like for you to be a woke person is that you bring the homeless poor into your house. And when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. At the heart of Judaism um, was this whole reality of, of family and taking care of family. To, um, <clears throat> to be righteous in a Jewish uh, framework was to leave an inheritance for um, your children and their children. Um, to, to die destitute and have no inheritance was thought to be shameful in that culture. And yet the family, though rightly was lifted high, oftentimes it was lifted too high so that the needs of the neighbor was ignored because their focus was the family. You get it? And so what God is coming and doing is he is saying something utterly radical to a people that are holding family up and have begun to to be prejudiced against uh, those people on the other side of town. Because he doesn't just say, um, remember your, you know, your loved ones, your own flesh, but he says, bring the homeless poor into your house. Treat the poor as if they are your family. That was radical. And I think what we see, even in the Old Testament, is this whole reality that, that gospel-driven, God-infused justice is radical. Uh, it, it, it's both conservative, more conservative than conservatism of today, and yet also more liberal than the liberalism of today. It goes beyond personal comfort. And it goes to the heart of laying your life down as God has laid his life down for us. This is what God, this is the end of our salvation. This is what he desires in the world is to produce a community, not just individuals who are saved for glory, but a community of God's people who are radically laying their lives down for their neighbor. 
I want you to know that I think one of the worst or probably one of the greatest victories the devil has won in the history of this nation and really throughout the history of the world is to divorce the biblical teaching of justice and the biblical teaching of the gospel. Um, you, You see, we can look at where we are as a city, being the poorest city in the country, and yet one of the, the most church cities. And we've got to go back to this reality that justice and the gospel were set at odds against each other. Bible-believing people believed that justice was just part and parcel to a liberal agenda. And the battle was won to divorce that from the mainline evangelical conservative Bible-believing church, I believe, by a sneer. If you look at the garden, you look at the fall, how did the devil have such influence over Adam and Eve? It was not with his words, it was the way that he said those words. Oh, did God really say that? I mean, a liberal can look at a conservative, someone who's, you know, maybe thinking about getting out of the liberal camp. Oh, come on, really? Or maybe someone in the conservative starts getting alive into some justice issues and their friends kind of look out. Oh, come on, really? You're going to go over there? It's a sneer and it's powerful. And yet I believe that's exactly what the devil used. And he has reaped havoc upon the cities and upon this nation Because when you have one community that has all the resources predominantly, when you have one community and they have all the power, if they don't have a heart for justice, the plight of those that are in poverty, the plight of the marginalized will only be worsened. And that's precisely what has happened. It guarantees generations of poverty and real disparity. And this is a gospel issue. Because as a loving God and loving neighbor are inseparable, so are gospel and justice. They cannot be separated. That's what we see here. We looked at it last week. Jesus separated the sheep from the goats based on what? Loving your neighbor or not loving your neighbor tangibly. And we see that the gospel produces men and women who love their neighbor in self-sacrificing ways. God's design from the start, from before the start, was to redeem a people who would be a community of gospel justice. Listen, if you will, starting in verse 7 of Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? If you pour yourself out for the hungry... And satisfy the desires of the afflicted. Then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. Do you see it? That a life of justice, gospel motivated, gospel saturated justice is what we must be woke to. If we're going to call ourselves the people of God. And then thirdly and finally, 
When we do that, when one is awake to the needs of his neighbor, he becomes a light beyond his neighbor. I love this. I don't know if you saw in the commercial appeal, I think it was last week, an article about um, <clears throat> several construction firms, commercial construction firms in this city, one being Linkus, owned by a man by the name of Rusty Linkus. He um, <clears throat> owns one of the largest construction firms in the city. And he understood that <clears throat> that there are no large minority-owned um, commercial construction firms in the city. Uh, there's some smaller firms, but there are no large firms that can compete for, you know, the, the big business like Chiska or like um, IKEA or other major projects. And so uh, Rusty Linkus, who is a Christian, um, uh, developed a relationship with a man that um, came up through the Binghampton uh, Development Corporation and started his own con- commercial construction firm um, out of Binghampton. And uh, Linkus won the, the contract to build a grocery store in Binghampton, right there at Tillman and Sam Cooper. Um, and so he brought this uh, minority business owner into the deal. He didn't need him. He could have kept all the money for himself. But he brought him in and put him on the executive team and, and brought him in the weekly meetings on the executive team with a voice to give him the experience so that one day, someday, his construction firm can grow to the point that he can bid on projects such as that. And then Linkus and Montgomery Martin um, commercial construction firm and one or two others have started a contractor's university where they bring in minority owners of construction firms across the city and they give them the experience, basically, to become their competition one day. Now, what other entity on the planet does that? What other group creates your own competition in hopes to get out in front and beat you in business one day? Who else is going to do that in society but people who don't need either their ego stroked or they don't depend upon the profit, the, the bottom line being profit. It's people that have an identity outside of their work. And the only people that have that are believers. We say that we can give up, we can sacrifice. Why? Because our identity is in the reality that God has redeemed us from beginning of time through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see it? And so justice, therefore, is so much bigger than starting a nonprofit. Justice is so much bigger than going to seminary and, and starting a ministry or being a minister. Justice is simply taking where you are in life with what you have in life and saying, God, help me to be creative. Help me to think outside the box. Help me to know what it would look like to leverage all that you've given me for the good of someone else. And all of us can do that. And what I love about the reality is that where I find great conformity in the church, I often find that it's hard to be creative in the church. Why? Because we're all trying to conform to whatever we think the Christian box is in the moment. But the gospel gives us freedom to get out of that box. The gospel gets us freedom to say, maybe God's calling me to do something that no one else has done. That's called creativity. 
Maybe God is calling me to use my resources to leverage them for those who don't have as many resources that I might give them a leg up. That is justice. And what happens when we do that? Look at verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. How, how do you want the world to know that, that you love Jesus? It's not through a track. It's through how you live your life as you sacrifice for those around you. Because when you do that, this light will dawn. When the church begins to do that, this light will dawn. And, and, and um, our righteousness will go before us. How? In reputation. People are talking. Do you know what those people are doing over there? Uh, they don't live for themselves. They take care of the poor. They, they, they create construction universities, contractors' universities. Who else is doing that? The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. How beautiful is that? We did a, I ordered a demographic study a couple months ago on downtown. I had looked at one eight years ago when we were planning the church. And I ordered a new one to see how things have changed. And I want you to know that um, I learned a lot of interesting things. But one thing that I learned was that uh, upwards to 80% of downtown residents have no affiliation um, and are not active at all with any kind of church. 80%. Unbelievable. And I don't know how you can look at that statistic and not realize, I don't care what church is growing, I don't care what fancy programs are happening, I don't care what's going on, but we are not reaching the culture. That is an indictment on us. And I believe at the very heart of that is that we have yet to be about gospel-saturated justice. We have yet to genuinely sacrifice on behalf of our neighbors. It's interesting what happens when we begin to get a vision for this. Verse 9, Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He will say, Here I am. I wish I had more time to unpack that, but let me just bring it to your front door with this. The genius of God in making justice the evangelism of the church, not the total evangelism. I believe in word ministry. I'm a preacher. I get that, okay? But to make justice, deed ministry, deed lifestyle, the evangelistic apologetic to the, to the world is so infinitely brilliant because simultaneously it gets his people sanctified and it gets the world saved. This design of having gospel-saturated justice gets his people sanctified and gets the world saved. What do I mean by that? If the problem is that the world doesn't believe our testimony because we're hypocrites, we preach one thing and are really about our own kingdom, that when we begin to awaken to the reality that we are to reflect in our lives the very salvation that has come to us by grace through faith, 
and we begin to sacrifice and spend our lives with the orphan and the widow, with the immigrant and the poor, the four uh, categories of, of the vulnerable, the quartet of the vulnerable that we talked about last week. And if you weren't here last week, go listen to that. Uh, I think it's, it's, you need to hear it to understand everything I'm saying today. But when we begin to do that, we begin to become the essence of the Beatitudes. You see, living your life among orphans, widows, immigrants, and the poor doesn't feed your ego. And see, that's called charity. And you can do that for a time, but then you're going to get mad and quit. But if you are really giving your life on a daily basis in this direction, you are not being fed by your work. You're being frustrated by your work. Because the devil hates it and he's going to oppose you. And it's hard work. It's not sexy. It's not, it's tough and it takes everything. But guess what? That is where Jesus meets us. He doesn't meet us when we're prideful and when we're full and when we're healthy. He meets us when we are broken and destitute and crying out to him. And the church has lost Jesus because we've lost justice. Because we don't have any reason to cry out for him. Because we can drive whatever car we want, buy whatever clothes we want, and eat whatever and wherever we want. Do you see it? So when we become moving our lives in a direction among the broken, and we become broken, then we're crying out to God, and we have an intimacy with Him that we can have in no other way. And this is beautiful. Because, look, other people are doing justice. And I'm gonna, the Black Lives Matter. There are some believers that are in the Black Lives Matter movement. I get that. And, and we state in our um, church statement that there are some, some areas or some, some of the agenda of the Black Lives Matter movement we can agree with and we can stand with them, you know, um, um, stand with them on that. But there's a difference between how many do justice and how believers do justice. We do justice out of the grace that's been poured out to us. We do it in humility and boldness, but seeking peace and kindness and mercy. Whereas others can do justice with a fist held high, saying, up yours to the man. And that's not how a Christian can operate. And you, it's interesting to see. It's, it's basic MLK Jr. Um, uh, teaching, but it's also basic gospel teaching. You don't fight fire with fire. You let the fire run over you if that's what it takes. But ultimately, grace and mercy and love wins the day. And who is going to do that but those whose identity has already been settled in a Savior who has risen from the dead, and even if we die, we rise with Him. Gospel-infused justice, lives of gospel-infused justice. That's what we're called to. It is my greatest prayer that downtown church can be used to some even small way to ignite a movement, again, of gospel-infused. I mean, Jesus-dripping, saturated-infused justice that the world might see the light and the glory of Christ, and we might see a change in this world. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for 
being justice for us. You took our condemnation. You went to the cross like a sheep, a lamb to the slaughter. You refused to open your mouth. You refused to shake your fist. You said, death, take your best shot. And then three days later, you rose again. And you did it for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Give us your spirit that we might be so enlivened by your gospel that we will want justice to be known in the land, that we will care about our hurting neighbor, that we will care about those that are hungry and naked and oppressed, and that we will be known as a people who gladly and joyfully and sacrificially set people free, spiritually and physically. So God, pour out your spirit and bring that kind of revival. We need it. We long for it. And I pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.